Welcome, everybody, to another uh, great segment here. We got a repeat guest, uh, Mr. Pac-Man, founder of Blur, uh, which it's been less than 24 hours, and we're recording on Tuesday, May 2nd, um, when they launched Blend. So, Pac-Man, great to have you um, on the show again. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Blend, and, and um, let me get started from there. Yeah, totally. Thanks for having me on again. And uh, and one short sentence, Blend is a peer-to-peer perpetual NFT lending protocol. Okay, we're going to have to unpack that for <laughs> normal listeners. Yeah, totally. I think maybe talking about what Blend enables on Blur, because we integrated it into the Blur marketplace, is probably the most useful context. So basically, with this new lending protocol, that we collaborated with, uh, you know, Dan Robinson and Transmissions Eleven primarily at Paradigm with. Uh, with this new protocol, we launched two new products on Blur yesterday. One was uh, borrowing, right? You can borrow against your NFTs on Blur. That's a fairly standard feature to launch with the Lightning protocol. And the next one was buy now, pay later, where basically using Blend to provide liquidity, you can actually buy an NFT with a small portion of the capital upfront and then pay the remainder later. So for example, let's say there is an NFT that costs like 10 ETH. You could provide one ETH of your own collateral and then borrow nine ETH to make the purchase, which is a huge unlock because now people can buy, you know, very expensive NFTs with much less capital upfront. And so those are the two features that Len enables. And then, you know, with, with that context in mind, maybe then I can talk about like what exactly a peer-to-peer perpetual NFT lending protocol means. Yeah. Why don't we go there? Awesome. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the first aspect is your peer-to-peer. So that's pretty straightforward in blend. All loans are peer-to-peer. There's no, you know, people who've come from DeFi are probably familiar with more peer-to-pool protocols like Aave or Compound. You know, where people just dump assets into the pool and then the pool itself handles the uh like loan offers per se right you can like borrow at like fixed ltvs like 60 percent ltv or whatever against your eth basically the protocol in that case is handling the risk um or you know everyone accepts the same risk parameters is, is probably another way of thinking about it whereas in a peer-to-peer model you basically have uh each lender define their own risk parameters. So maybe, you know, let's say there's a 10 ETH collection, one lender wants to lend five ETH at one interest rate, like 50% LTV at a certain interest rate. Another lender can offer, you know, 80% LTV, most likely at a higher interest rate because now they're taking on more risk. So that's what I mean by peer to peer. And when I say perpetual, so this is more similar to how you know, people who are familiar with DeFi, like Compound and Aave, will be familiar with with uh, lending, which is you know when you take a loan on on Aave, that position is perpetual until you get liquidated, and in Blend, your position is perpetual until the position is liquidated or repaid as well. The twist is that normally this is only done in a peer to pool fashion. For peer to peer protocols, especially in NFTs. Historically, the protocols would have a fixed duration. So it wasn't a perpetual loan. You couldn't just like wait, you know, forever to pay back your loan. You would actually have to set like a 
duration, like, you know, 14 days, 30 days, one day, et cetera. It was typically on average like 30 days. And you would have to basically pay back your loan at the 30 day mark or within that 30 day period. Uh, or if you forgot, you would, uh, you would lose your NFT. So blend is kind of a combination of both has some of the peer to pool dynamics, but then it also has the peer to peer dynamics in that instead of the pool choosing the risk parameters, it allows lenders to choose the full range of risk parameters that they're comfortable with. So let's walk uh, through an example. Say you have a CryptoPunk and the floor is, I don't know, 80 ETH. So walk us through kind of the flow. If, if I, if you have a punk and you want to, you know, use blend, how, how does it work? Yeah. So first, basically the lenders have to start making offers on punks since punks are, you know, like that, like OG chip collection. It's probably one of the most, you know, safest collections to lend against, at least like in terms of what the market would, would consider. Uh, and so maybe what you'd see is a lender can make a, you know, a 60 ETH offer. I think actually punks are, let me just check right now. I think punks like the floor right now is, is probably something along the lines of like 60 ETH. So maybe, maybe it's, it's a 60 ETH, someone makes like a 50 ETH loan offer. Uh, and then if you own a punk, you can basically borrow 50 ETH against that punk. And now let's say it was like a 50 ETH loan offer at like a 20% APY. That means that once you start borrowing that 50 ETH, your interest will accrue at a rate of, you know, 20% per year. So, you know, after a year, if you held that position for a year, your total debt that you would owe would increase from 50 ETH to 60 ETH. And in, in, in this case, um, you know, you need obviously have someone else on the other side willing to supply. Um, yeah. So, so if you could talk a little bit about that dynamic as well. Yeah, totally. So the interesting thing about, you know, NFT finance is prior to Blur and since launching uh, Blend, uh, Blur became the largest uh, NFT lending protocol by volume uh, and, and also by user share uh, within 24 hours. But Basically, prior to blind launch, the typical APY that you could earn in the NFT finance space was around like 20 to 30%, which is, and that's on ETH, which is much higher than the yield that you normally get in DeFi, right? I think the median uh, yield for like liquid staking or like DeFi protocols is typically around like 4 to 6% APY, unless you do some like leverage thing. Yep. So... The, the yield is much higher. Um, and this is, you know, kind of more so due, it is not necessarily inherently due to like the NFT as an asset, but it's probably more so due to uh, the space, you know, who the borrowers are, the risk tolerances of the borrowers, and also uh, the lack of market efficiency uh, in the space. But basically the natural yield for lenders is already quite high. Uh, and so lenders would provide these loans because they can, you know, based on their risk tolerances, they can earn a, a nice yield on their ETH that's uh, much higher than they can get uh, in traditional DeFi. Yeah, and by that, like, let's unpack that a little, right? In the case of if you're if you're borrowing some ETH, um, you know, it, basically in the event of a liquidation or automatic refinancing, which my understanding is can be triggered by either the lender or the borrower, then you need to be you need to believe that there's ample liquidity in there to either liquidate the NFT that you get as, you know, that you basically get if the borrower defaults, 
right? The lender's going to have to, you know, take possession of that NFT and probably want to liquidate that to get back his ETH, right? Um, we've seen, and correct me here if I'm wrong, but we've seen obviously the floor of these NFTs, even the larger collections that we're seeing here in, in Blur. You know, you're talking about punks, my late. Uh, Miladies, um, you know, Azukis, maybe Apes down the road. These are fairly liquid markets, but still the floor has been fairly volatile. Some people out there say, hey, listen, what, you know, th there's sort of this financial, the financialization of NFTs has created sort of these wild swings in the floor prices of these NFTs, even though you've seen an increase in liquidity. So maybe walk us through kind of this example where there is a refinancing, there's a default in the, like what happens there? Yeah, absolutely. I think, and, and, you know, another thing to note about blend is in addition to being peer to peer perpetual protocol, uh, you know, an un, unspoken aspect of it is that it's actually Oracle-less. So most DeFi lending protocols rely on an Oracle, uh, and you know, almost every exploit that happens for a DeFi lending protocol is typically some sort of like Oracle exploit. Um, you know, someone pumps up the price of some illiquid asset and then they use that to uh, basically like drain the liquidity pool of the lending protocol. The interesting thing about Blend is that, you know, due to the peer-to-peer -peer nature, it doesn't rely on Oracles at all. And instead, the lenders themselves can trigger a liquidation uh, basically it's not actually like a liquidation. It's, it's actually more of like a refinancing auction. Yeah. The lenders themselves can trigger a refinancing auction at, at any time. And you might think, oh, like at any time, isn't that like really risky for the borrower? But in practice, what this means is that the auction, since it takes 30 hours, so the entire duration of the auction is 30 hours. What that auction does is it basically attempts to find another lender at a market interest rate when the current lender doesn't want to hold on to the loan anymore, mm -hmm. right? So this is, um, you know, they basically have this like loan position, they're earning some sort of yield on it and they, they want their liquidity back. Oh, jump in Garrett. Yeah. I was just going to say compared to like peer to pool on a peer to peer, one of the big things is going to, I would think it fractures and fractures, um, liquidity in a sense, because it's not just a pool with standard LTV standard rates. You're going to have these different nuanced offers. So I'm curious, one, just who are these lenders and how do you incentivize that market? Because when you're talking about this liquidation and auction, uh, I would think the risk to the borrower is that no other lender steps in during that auction. So you need to be, basically you're not manipulating an Oracle here, but you need to make sure that it's not like manipulation going on with the lenders that could step in. Great question. So a key assumption of the protocol is that there's a liquid enough lending market here that when an auction happens, that the auction can find another lender at the market rate, right? So for example, you know, even with punks, even with all the volatility, right? And, and this is through like Luna collapsing, FTX crashing, like all of our liquidity providers, you know, like exiting the system, um, you know, the big sources of institutional liquidity exiting the system, like even with all of that volatility and, and even like in this like macro market, the prices of punks have typically held around like 50 ETH, uh, you know, 40, 50, I think the minimum is probably around like 40 ETH or something like that. But, you know, 50 ETH is like a pretty stable point. And so let's say I take a 50% LTV loan, right? If I take a loan for 25 ETH, if 
if I was a lender and there was no other lenders, so they just consider like the most extreme example, because I think that's probably the most useful to understand the system. If I was the only lender and then I trigger an auction and then no one refinances it in the 30 hour period. So then at the end of the refinancing, if, if no other lender steps in and no, the borrower doesn't repay, then the loan defaults and the lender keeps the NFT. If I, as a lender get that NFT for 25 ETH, I just got a steal because I can go and sell that. You can go and sell that into a blur bid right now, uh, for, for over 50 ETH. So, you know, you just made 25 ETH, uh, for free after a 30 hour delay. So in that sort of market environment, if, if the market is inefficient, then yeah, lenders can make like a profit like that. But we know that ETH will chase yield, right? Liquidity will chase yield. And if that dynamic is happening, then it shouldn't happen for very long because anyone with 25 ETH will see, oh, wow, like this person's about to make 100% APY on their 25 ETH alone. I would rather step in and make a lower, maybe I can make 50% APY, a 50% return. But I'd rather step in and, and make that return than just like let someone make free money like that. So, uh, well, in that, in that case, the APY is way greater than hundred, right? Because that just happened in like almost instantaneously. Right, you're right. It's actually way way. Greater. So, so, so there is this range in this Dutch auction from zero to a thousand APY. Walk us through kind of the intuition around that level and setting those parameters. Yeah. So, the auction when it gets, uh, goes into the refinancing auction, basically it'll go, okay, this is a loan for 25 ETH. Um, does anyone want to take it? It starts at a 0% interest rate. And then at the end of the 30 hours, it reaches a thousand percent interest rate. And so basically this means that, you know, at the beginning, maybe no one's willing to lend at 0% APY. That would make sense. Um, but by the end of it, right. If you're, if you're able to earn, you know, a thousand percent APY, on your ETH, that's like a pretty good deal, especially on, on punks where, you know, the floor is held pretty much around 50 ETH, uh, even through like pretty crazy financial collapses and you're risking 25 ETH mm -hmm. LTB. So like those are pretty good risk parameters. Um, so basically it attempts to find the market rate for, um, for the loan. And it basically goes to the market and tries to find someone to step in at the market rate. It's kind of similar to how a lot of, uh, like liquidation auctions will work, like, you know, maybe in like MakerDAO or um, you know, in compound, I, I think in Aave, I think it works on something similarly where it's like when the liquidation actually occurs, an auction is initiated to try to find, uh, another lender to step in and, and, and they should step in as long as there's money to be made. Yeah. In this example on the, on the borrower side, you know, they could, you know, say that they, you know, borrowed, I don't know, 25 ETH or so they need to either in an extreme scenario, they, they, the choices that they have is to, you know, repay or lose this NFT, um, right? They could, you know, the, the, basically what I'm trying to assess is the NFT is held in, you know, in this collateral. I mean, you're basically holding this in a smart contract, right? Um, what I'm trying to say is the you can have like a flash loan of sorts so that the borrower like can borrow some e like liquidate that nft do some weird kind of ah uh, yeah yeah great so in terms of for the borrower and, and also you know i think i think it probably is useful to just stay on the lending topic for a bit because yeah sure. I'm, I'm trying to build up the intuition for the protocol from the ground up um you know basically what we just discussed is okay if the market is efficient then another lender should come in 
the only reason why another lender wouldn't come in is if the market isn't efficient. So it's like, okay, like how do you make this an efficient market? You know, one of the nice things is that Blur as the largest marketplace by volume on Ethereum, uh, you know, has a lot of attention. So anything that we release is, is going to get attention on it. Um, the other nice thing is that in addition to just like the natural yield that you get and like the natural market forces, Blur, uh, to a certain extent, subsidizes that attention with the lending points. So with the integration of Blend into the Blur marketplace, we also redirected the listing points, which, you know, for those unfamiliar, the, the point system that we have, it's it's towards uh, basically credit towards season two, which is our second airdrop, uh, where 300 million plus Blur will be distributed uh, in season two. So basically, we are utilizing the lending incentives to effectively ensure that we have an efficient market. Yeah, I think one one interesting thing about that right now is like when you look at the Dune dashboard, it looks like there's some loans at 0% interest. And I would assume that's more of a short-term thing that's part of these incentives. Um, and, and like with that though, I think the average APY on these different um, NFT sets are around 100%. I'm just curious, like where do you think those APYs will end up and like why is it so high at the moment? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I still need to dig into some of the data. Uh, I think some of the Dune dashboards are still being worked on. So need to confirm like the accuracy of it. Uh, the high level metrics in terms of like the total loan volume. So in the past 24 hours, around 9,000 ETH worth of loan volume uh, has been uh, has been done, which I think is like 15x the previously uh, largest like NFT lending protocol. Um, but in terms of like that APYs, I need to, I need to double check that. Uh, in terms of, you know, where does a 0% APY come from? Uh, of course, you know, that only works because the interest rates, the lower interest rates are being subsidized by blur incentives. Uh, and I think a good intuition for this is if you actually study the web two by now pay later market, so like after pay or like Arnum, actually, uh, a lot of times in your purchases, you, you can actually make a purchase with 0% APY. So if you like buy like an iPhone and you're like, okay, I want to go on a payment plan, you know, over 24 months, they actually will let you do that payment plan uh, with a 0% interest rate. The reason why that's possible is because the buy now, pay later uh, functionality is so useful for the merchant that the merchants will actually subsidize that 0% interest rate. So, so in Web2, you actually already have this 0% interest phenomenon. It's subsidized by the merchant. In this case, in Web3, when we integrated buy now, pay later into Blur, you can kind of think of it as the blur protocol incentives are subsidizing that 0% interest rate yeah. phenomenon, just like it happens in web two where the merchant is subsidizing it. Yeah. I think that's really cool. I was actually listening to acquired yesterday on Peloton. I was talking, I think it's Klarma that uh, did buy now pay later for Peloton. And when they went public, it showed that 25% of their revenue was from Peloton on the buy now pay later. So it was absolutely huge for them just because the LTV for the Peloton customers. So I, um, yeah, no, that's really interesting about the 0% interest rates right now. I'm curious, just to like, who do you think are the main borrowers here? And I know it's a perpetual loan, but at least how I think about it at a high level, it's like you really have 30 hours where it's fixed because that's what you know the rate's going to be before it could go into auction. So do you think this tends to be at least right now, like more of a for flippers that might, well, you know, buy an NFT and flip it within 24 hours? And where do you think that will change from where it is today on who those borrowers are? Yeah, totally. I think for the longer durations, uh, we'll, we'll have to see exactly how the market dynamics play out. But in terms of how the, the auction mechanism works, so when a lender triggers the auction, 
uh, it'll actually attempt to basically match the loan with an existing within uh, with another loan offer on the order book. So for example, if if I created a 25 ETH loan at a 10% interest rate and there's a, another loan offer on the book for 25 ETH at a 10% interest rate, that won't if I go if I'm the lender and I trigger the auction, it doesn't actually go into auction. It'll just automatically refinance a loan with that offer on the order book. So depending on how uh, like the, the offers on the order book, when when the lender triggers the refinancing, it might actually not even go into auction. The only reason why it would go into auction is that if there are no uh, loan offers uh, at the same LTV uh, or at, at, at least that LTV and at, at that interest rate, um, the reason why there wouldn't be another loan offer at that interest rate is uh, maybe the market market conditions changed, right? So like mm-hmm. maybe, you know, I create a loan offer at 25 ETH when the floor was 55 ETH. But now the floor actually like fell in like 30 hours, uh, you know, like, you know, since the loan was open, maybe it fell to like 50 ETH. And so now the 25 ETH loan is, is no longer the same risk parameters. So the market interest rate should probably change. This is a very similar dynamic to if you take a, a, a borrower position on an exchange, your interest rate on that position actually changes hourly. So it's, it's actually even, even more aggressive than um, than what Blend uh, enables. But on an exchange, when you have a borrower position, it, the interest rate changes hourly and then you can get liquidated instantly. Uh, this enables the exchange to offer um, you know much more aggressive uh, loan parameters than than uh, you otherwise would be able to because they can you know liquidate you instantly. On Blend, the interest rate updates you know basically at most every uh, like every twenty four every twenty four thirty hours. So it kind of it still has this like dynamic interest rate model and liquidation period takes like thirty hours. So it kind of has like similar um, dynamics to how borrower positions and liquidations happen on exchanges it's just a little bit more drawn out because of the fact that you know these assets are nfts they're not fungible tokens and it's a much less liquid market compared to the fungible token market and so we can't really code the same parameters as exchanges where they do an hourly updated interest rate and instant liquidations this uh, reminds me a little bit of uni v3 in the sense that you're you know as a liquidity provider you're able to kind of determine the range by which you're comfortable at supplying said liquidity. It sounds great. However, I think what we've realized is there's only a small subset of people that are sophisticated enough to actually manage these positions, right? Um, and so I want to get into V3 because I think it's relevant. You mentioned the Paradigm team that was instrumental kind of in, in architecting Blend. So we'd love to perhaps just start with the story and then transition into you know, your thoughts around, you know, how sophisticated the market is to actually deal with, you know, NFTs um, as opposed to just regular tokens from V3. Yeah, V3. Right. I think that's a really great point. And, and actually, as we were talking, I was I was thinking the same thing, right? Because the dynamic that we saw with Uniswap, you know, go, you know, from Uniswap V2 to V3 is V2 was that pool model. Everyone takes the same risk parameters, right? They just dump their assets into a pool. Uh, and then that that works to an extent, but V3 was a huge unlock because it allowed, uh, even though it's a, it's like a semi-pooled model, it's like somewhat peer-to-peer. It's also kind of peer-to-pool. Uh, basically, allows the liquidity providers to have the full range of risk parameters. 
uh, and that makes it more complicated, but then it also allows much more expressivity from uh, a protocol perspective. Uh, and then of course, you know, SOP3 became the dominant model uh, for provisioning liquidity uh, for fungible tokens. And I think the, the reason for why that is, is if you study every financialized market in history, the progression is it always starts with, uh, you know, it'll start out simple and, un, and relatively less sophisticated, right? Maybe it's more retail driven. Maybe it's just like whales that, um, you know, are more passive. And over time, as the space grows, the liquidity becomes more experienced, and professionalized. Um, as the space grows and scales, you end up, end up getting, you know, institutional liquidity providers and you no longer have these like individuals provisioning liquidity. So like on USOP 3 the majority of the volume and liquidity is actually provisioned uh, by market makers like Wintermute, et cetera. I think Wintermute does like 30% of Uniswap B3's volume uh, or something crazy like that. Uh, and then, you know, like the next five market makers probably do the remaining uh, 80%. Um, so basically every financial market over time professionalizes. The same thing is kind of at play here where, you know, when we were thinking through the space and you're asking about the story, um, you know, we basically, uh, started working with Dan Robinson, who is, uh, you know, kind of like really like the, the key inventor of Uniswap B3. Uh, and we were thinking through how to design a protocol that would work for NFTs. Um, and, you know, I think you can see a lot of the similar ideas at play in blend where instead of a pool model, where, you know, everyone takes those same risk parameters and when, when you're, when you're, uh, taking a loan against a peer to pool or trading against a peer to pool model you're not actually trading against a protocol per se. The protocol really just forces everyone into the same risk parameters, right? So you're, you're trading against a set of liquidity providers and the peer-to-pool model basically is just saying, okay, everyone's going to be on the same terms. Whereas in a peer-to-peer model, you know, you're, you're trading against a set of liquidity providers, but those liquidity providers are expressing a much broader range of, uh, you know, risk profiles and, and preferences. So that's the same thing that's happening in Blend and you can see a lot of mm-hmm analogs there if you're a winter mute or a sophisticated liquidity provider you're obviously going to pay attention to blend right you're going to be if you have eth that you want to supply you say well i can capture a higher apy and if you get comfortable with the mechanism and you know ample liquidity and whatnot and you know the risk parameters you know what it what do you see in terms of the next like six 12 months in terms of professional market makers coming in here what does that do to the whole NFT market. And I know it's like it's a broad question, but I'm curious, I mean, as to what you think this protocol, the the impact of this protocol will have on, on the NFT market and also potentially DeFi. Absolutely. So I think, you know, ultimately the, the thesis of BART and the goal has always been, you know, just as we've studied and seen in the token market where as the exchanges created more advanced infrastructure that enabled you know, deeper, more institutional liquidity, it actually enabled even more growth for the consumers, right? Whether that's traders, uh, funds, or, you know, individual uh, retail, um, it, the institutional grade liquidity and the full expressiveness uh, that is unlocked through these economic primitives enables more growth on the demand side. And we are building Blur to basically do the, bring the same thing to NFTs uh, we have to do it in an NFT native way because, you know, NFTs as assets are, are fundamentally different than, than tokens. They, they are non-fungible. So there's, there's both fungible and non-fungible aspects of NFTs, but they are a different asset class. Uh, but basically we're trying to 
build primitives from the ground up to enable a similar level of growth. And, you know, over the next six months, what I would expect is, you know, all, at the end of the day, yield is yield. And if you can provide yield on blend uh, and provide econ blend and earn a higher yield than you can uh, through other mechanisms, then there that's 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 a arbitrage, right? Someone, someone's going to go and do that. So we would expect uh, over time more and more liquidity to come in to blend, uh, you know, because on the on the demand side, uh, there is a lot of demand. So the the users of the protocol, these are typically you know, NFT traders, uh, we've also seen, um, you know, it's actually been really amazing seeing just kind of some of the the reception to blend, uh, you know, in the past 24 hours, we've seen people, uh, you know, tweeting about like, you know, joining the garden, that's like for like a Zuki's, for example, it's like, when you get in as a huge join the garden, they're like, Oh, just join the garden, like to beat. Um, so there's, there's people who want to, you know, hold on to an NFT, or, you know, uh, you know, e even like almost like even like rent the NFT for a period of time. Uh, right, or they want to buy the NFT and they can't pay it all up right now, so they'll buy, you know, they'll they'll pay a portion up front and pay it down over time, similar to how people might use Klarna to buy a Peloton and pay it, pay it down over time. Uh, so you have those people, and then you also have traders, of course, as well, who uh, maybe they don't have the full amount of ETH to take a you know a position, uh, a spot position, but they can, you know, they have some ETH, so they can, you know, take a partial position uh, and capture some of the upside as well that way. So on the demand side, that's that's what we have. It's, it's really the NFT native people. On the liquidity side, we would expect that to be more professionalized over time. We would expect that right now, I would say it's 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 not that as much. We see some DeFi people, but it's more so, it's still like a relatively inefficient you know market. There's still higher, uh, as you saw, like the average APR on on uh, Blend, it, uh, if the June dashboard is accurate, is is much, much higher than like the average yield on, on like a DeFi protocol. So it's still like an inefficient market, but we would expect, um, you know, the people who kind of come in first to, uh, uh, you know, to make like the most yield and over time, the yields, you know, probably should compress, but then also like the sizes should also increase in terms of like the total amount of liquidity. So maybe you're making, you know, slightly less yield, but on more, you know, on, on more AUM. Uh, but we would expect that to be, you know, more like professionalized with the providers. To put some finer points, so it's been roughly, you know, 23 hours since you launched or 22 hours. There's been... 846 loans accepted. Um, there's been a total of 8,820 ETH that has been loaned out, so roughly kind of 15 million bucks or so. Uh, I did notice that one of the largest uh, liquidity providers was Big Maki, who has been fairly active in Blur, to say the least. Um, you talk about inefficiencies. Like, what are some of the inefficiencies that you're seeing right now? And perhaps... Uh, for someone that is looking to use Blend, if you're like a winter, what are some of like the perhaps profitable strategies that you envision people kind of um, deploying on Blend? Yeah, so you know, I think I need to study the the data a little bit more myself just to kind of be able to give you like a thorough answer on that. But ultimately, I mean, it's the same with any market. the The liquidity providers who will do the best are going to be the ones who. Um, take the time to understand the market and by understanding the market, uh, create, you know, loan offers with the, with the proper risk parameters, with the proper LTVs that actually allow them to maximize their yield. Right. So it's like, if you are, maybe you're someone in DeFi that like, wasn't looking at NFTs at all. And, and then you looked at like punks, for example, you might be like, oh, it's like an NFT. It's volatile. It's a liquid. Um, I don't want to create any loan offers more than you know, 30% LTV, because I think that this could crash at any time. 
uh, versus if you're someone who's, uh, you know, been in the space for a while, like for example, there's one, uh, there's one account that's like punks OTC and they're like literally like the only market maker for, for punks. Uh, and they've been doing it like, you know, for like the past like year, maybe more, they really understand the market and they're probably going to be like, okay, you know, I kind of have a sense of what the right, you know, market price for punks should be. So, uh, I don't want to do a 30% LTV loan. Actually, I'm willing to do a 60, 70, 80 uh, even maybe even 90% LTV loan, um, depending on the interest rate, because I have confidence that my pricing is accurate. And so I think right now, uh, the inefficiency is more so, I don't think there's a lot of providers who, you know, deeply understand the market and also have liquidity and can create these loan offers. Um, you know, over time, that'll likely change. Although I would say it's the NFT market has remained inefficient for um a much longer period than I would have expected. Uh, uh, so, you know, we'll see how how quickly that changes. But basically, that's what I would expect over time is the people who really understand the market, they'll be able to make the, the best yield. Uh, because, of course, if you have, you know, too low of a risk or too high of a risk, you can get hurt, you know, both ways, right? You either on take, you, you basically will just like make less than you otherwise would because your yield will be too low uh, or you'll, you know, your risk parameters will be too, too aggressive. Uh, so the people who have understand it and can make offers in the sweet spot will do the best. Yeah. A lot of what we talk about in NFTs is a floor because, you know, for instance, in a crypto punk, the floor is kind of the more basic crypto punk instead of in terms of attributes. Um, and so you have out of the 10,000 collection, you have, you know, 20% or so that are just basic entry level punks or Azukis or apes or whatnot certainly a fair amount of like attributes that these NFTs have or collections have. Talk to us a little bit about the plan in the future to incorporate more collections. So right now you have three, Azukis, Ponks, and Miladies. Um, where does this look in, in the next kind of, can you add, what are the challenges and opportunities to add more collections and not just floor um, NFTs? So for instance, a zombie punk or a much more you know rare Azuki or whatnot. Yeah, great, great question. So we started with three collections to start with, uh, Punk, Suzuki's, and Miladies. Um, you know, basically we wanted three collections at three different price points. So Punk's floor is around like 55, 60 ETH. Uh, Zuki's is around like 15. Uh, Miladies was around like two to three. Um, so it was, you know, three different price points uh, for three different collections. We wanted to start with three because we wanted to uh, basically make sure that we concentrate attention and build up liquidity in those collections because you know blend only works if there's a you know somewhat efficient market right it, it, it works over the long term because like the market does just become more efficient over time um like just by default but we wanted to basically minimize the period in which it was inefficient we wanted we wanted that period of inefficiency to be basically zero so that's why we started with you know three collections to start and then once we feel comfortable with a level of liquidity uh in those three markets then we'll add more collections. Um, you know, that could be uh, a period of weeks. It could be a week. It could be a few days. Uh, it's really just a matter of just kind of like analyzing the data and being like, okay, like, do we feel good about this? Like, okay, like, let's, let's add the next collection. Let's add the next next collection. Yeah. I think the limit of that is eventually you get to a collection where it's like, okay, there's just not really enough, you know, borrower interests on it, right? There's not enough of a of a pedigree and not, not enough of a history. And so there's not going to be like borrower demand. There's also not going to be much like lender demand. And so I think like at a, a certain point, it just like it stops making sense to uh, 
you know, like the, the ultra long tail probably doesn't make sense. But like, if you look at like exchanges or even like DeFi protocols, like the, the ultra long tail is not really a thing either. Blend being peer to peer can actually support many more markets than a typical peer to pool model, because since the peer to pool model keeps the same risk parameters for everyone, they have to be more conservative. Like if you look at like Aave, for example, or compound, it's like, they only have like eight, 10 markets, whereas in a peer to peer model, you can actually have much more. If you look at mm -hmm. big exchanges, for example, um, you know, they have many more markets that you can borrow against. Like, I think if you go on Binance, it's like, there's like hundreds that you can borrow yeah, against. Absolutely. Um, so that, that peer to peer model actually enables more markets. Um, but basically I think we just keep on adding markets until it, it doesn't make sense. And then in terms of, uh, you know, liquidity for like the trades, like the rare, you know, zombie punks, et cetera. Uh, you know, that's absolutely something that we are going to explore afterwards in general, right now, a lot of blurs, uh, like product and protocol has been built around the floors because that's where the most activity yeah. and, and liquidity is. But the thing that really excites us about NFTs is that, you know, since they are non-fungible, you also have these traits and, and there's also like not even individual traits, but there's also grails as well, where it's just like one of one. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how do we, uh, you know, enable more liquidity for that. That's something that we'll, we'll focus on afterwards. Um, I think that, you know, that's probably something like just thinking off the top of my head, um, I would imagine that some of the parameters would be needed, would need to change for enabling like trade loan offers. Like for example, um, I think blend would be well suited for traits that are, um, that have like a relatively active market, right? So maybe zombie pumps trade like too infrequently for blend to, to really make sense. Um, but you know, there are certain punk attributes where it's like, okay, there's, there's enough of a history there and enough activity that it makes sense. Um, I could imagine us using a, a different, uh, creating a different like lending protocol just for like individual NFTs, um, just because it's going to be a little bit more, mm -hmm. uh, a little bit more customized for that. But, you know, focusing on trades is definitely going to be something that, uh, we we direct our attention to next as core contributors. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the APY, and I know the data is you know it's fairly early still, but you know there, there's season two, so a lot of folks uh, you could argue that the APY is being kind of distorted because people are kind of hoping to get you know acquire more points and you know get the airdrop, but in a kind of a steady state kind of efficient market, um, where like you could presumably see a whole lot of, well, not in a steady state, but like you're probably going to see after the 30 hour window, like a constant amount of automatic refinancings, right? Because so say that I was one of the first ones and I'm willing to lend, you know, at a certain APY. And then that moves, which has been moving quite dramatically, right? When I looked two or three hours ago, the APY on some punks, the median was like 28%. Now it's jumped all the way to 60. Well, if I was lending at the 20 range, I would immediately, or like as soon as I practically can, will trigger an automatic refinancing. That rate, that loan should reprice, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and so I guess my question is perhaps what's that APY curve like? Like, is it going to be super volatile initially and then it kind of stabilizes? Or do you constantly expect these kind of wild fluctuations in, in rates? I think ultimately, if the market conditions change, then the APY will change to reflect those market conditions. And that's a feature, not a bug. If, if you have 
risk parameters that are staying constant, even through volatile market conditions, then the only way that that can make sense is if the lender is basically being so conservative that they can you know, handle that volatility, um, which means they're going to have much lower interest, uh, much lower LTVs, much, much lower yeah. rates. So we expect in the SETI but, but in that, Let me just interrupt. In that case, wouldn't the borrower, if he's getting a super low APY, sorry, a super low LTV, like why would he accept that in the first place? Yeah. So, I mean, currently, uh, prior to, to blend, there were other protocols that like peer to peer where it was like 50% LTV. Um, and you know, I had, had some usage, but, uh, you know, less, less usage, less usage, usage than blend. Um, I think, you know, in the market, it's like that, like, that's a great question is like, as a borrower, you're probably not going to be as interested in that super low LTV, uh, loan. So you're, you know, and I think that was kind of reflected in, in, in the market data empirically when you enable higher ltvs across like the full range of, of people than uh, of risk parameters then you know people who want to take a low ltv loan or are comfortable with that they can do that but then people who want to take a high ltv loan can can do that as well and and, and enables basically more market participants i guess more market preferences to match right because that's what that's what blend you know as a marketplace you know we match you know buyers and sellers and as a lending protocol uh, and I'm saying we here, like speaking, like as like from like a protocol perspective, as a lending protocol, you know, we match you know lenders and borrowers, and so if you allow the full expressivity, then you can you know match a lot more preferences. Uh, so that's that's why we were pretty confident that when we launched this, we would also see a lot more usage than we've previously seen on on some of these other lending protocols. I mean, do you think there's any analogy here with thinking about options and perps and why in crypto, like? Options still haven't really taken off yet, but perps have such a high volume. And I think part of it's just probably market maturity. But w when you're thinking about this, when it's peer-to-peer -peer versus peer-to-pool, it kind of makes me think of options versus perps because the options are customized based on you know duration and so forth. So I'm just curious, is there anything to learn from that that would apply here? Yeah, I think that there there is. And... It really has to do with who the participants are. So we think about like options, you know, options are, I guess when you drill down into it, fairly simple, but the UX of options is, is so confusing and complicated. And so it's not really going to get a lot of usage from, you know, normal crypto participants. It's more so institutions right like if people who are using Deribit, it's not like it's not like individuals it's like more so like institutional accounts um and it's just like a more advanced uh financial primitive i would say whereas perks is something that is something that uh like basically like any trader can use and wrap their heads around uh on on the usage on the ux side um i think the pricing of perks is like quite complicated like if you if you start asking people like oh like how do perks work there's like very few people that can actually explain how it works but as like a user it's like anyone can kind of go and use that and it's like fairly straightforward and i think a similar thing a dynamic exists here where if you actually go on blur and try initiating a buy now pay later transaction or uh try uh borrowing against your nft the ux is is fairly straightforward but on the liquidity provider side it can be a lot more advanced so if you go to the loans tab of uh, of, of uh, you know, like Punk Suzuki's or Milady's, you'll notice it's it's looking a little bit complicated. Uh, and, and that's just a function of, you know, 
the liquidity providers are going to be different participants than than the users. Uh, mm. That doesn't that doesn't mean that options will never like for example like NFT options. That doesn't mean NFT options will never be a thing. But when we think about you know what makes sense and what will work, it I think they just like based on the market dynamics, it really you have to look at like who the users are in order to kind of think through the adoption of it. Um, I do think there's a world where NFT options uh, can can become a thing, but I think it's that's probably a more mature, larger market, probably where where NFTs are uh, not just PFPs, but maybe like real world assets, maybe like even like homes or things like that. Like it'd be, I think I think when once NFTs starts digitizing and putting on chain more assets than just PFPs, then I think options could could very much become a thing. Mm-hmm. And and ultimately, when when we think about the market, you know, I think there's like a great like Naval quote where he's like you know, tokens are going to eat like, you know, all, all assets, right? Like everything's going to be like tokenized, like every, every fungible thing is going to be tokenized. You know, we have, we share a similar belief for NFTs where, you know, tokens might eat, you know, fungible assets, but non-fungible tokens are going to eat non-fungible assets. Um, you know, the UX is so great. You can, you know, it's like a 24 seven market. It's worldwide. Uh, we think the, that as a primitive can, grow massive like really into like a trillion dollar market but i think as of right now in terms of the market maturity i would be surprised if something like options uh becomes super popular hmm. so um i've heard you say in the in the first episode we recorded about you talking about blur you did mention that it was very much built for a neglected part of the market which was kind of traders right nft traders in this case um you know i'm just kind of like referencing a a, a tweet by dc investor uh you know fairly well-known collector, he says, hey, listen, you know, you know, the idea that you have to constantly monitor this position and, you know, within 30 hours, you could, you know, have to kind of take some sort of action makes me think that, and I'm quoting him, that this is really a product for people that want to go long in a particular NFT and, you know, have the capacity to monitor this 24-7 or have a really short duration. Um, Would you agree with that? Is that when you're kind of architecting blend, you are also taking the mentality of we're just going to cater to kind of more professional, active kind of traders in the market versus collectors. Is that kind of a fair statement? Yeah, I would say that's not quite accurate. Um, I think right now, when we look at who's using it, you know, Blend is such a new protocol that it's only people who are uh, going to be more risk on and experimental that are using it. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty around the dynamics, at least, you know, from a market perspective. Right. And so that means that people who are like collectors that, cause oftentimes collectors, they don't want to give up their grails or their NFTs, but they, they might need liquidity. And so, you know, they'll still want to take out loans and that's serving the collector market. But I would expect right now that, you know, for those collectors, when they look at blend, they're like, okay, this is like a new thing. I don't really know how it's going to play out. So I'm just going to kind of sit on the sidelines and and decide later. Uh, but ultimately this kind of mechanism due to the perpetual nature of it, when we, when we were designing blend, we also would talk to, you know, some of the traders or, uh, you know, like big whale collectors. And we actually found that for them, having a perpetual mechanism is actually much more user-friendly than having like a fixed duration. That's like the other, you know, popular model for peer-to-peer uh, lending is you have fixed duration. And what we found was that 
actually for the fixed duration is like basically if you take out a loan for like 30 days, you need to set a reminder 30 days later to pay back your loan. Uh, otherwise, you lose your NFT. And we saw instances where, where literally like the collectors might have had enough ETH and uh, could have repaid loan and actually wanted to repay loan, like specific uh, instances of this where they wanted to, um, but they forgot and they like didn't get the notification in time or something like that. Uh, and then they, they like lost their NFT as a result. And so that's like a very unfriendly UX for borrowers. Whereas with Blend, the uh, basically the liquidation mechanism is really due to market liquidations. Like in an efficient market, the liquidation will only happen if the market conditions change. It doesn't happen when the lender just randomly liquidates and, you know, it's like 3 a.m. at night and you didn't, you know, get the notification and then you get liquidated. That in the steady state, that actually doesn't happen. In the steady state, what happens is, oh, the lender wanted their liquidity back. Okay, fine. Another lender stepped in and took over that loan. So in the steady yeah. state for collectors, they can actually take out loans against their NFTs um, without having to worry about a liquidation unless the market conditions change. And what we found is, you know, pretty much everyone in the market will have some sort of pulse on the market conditions. Like, you know, you know, if Bitcoin crashes or if it pumps, right? Like as like a Bitcoin holder, you, you know, even if you're like passive, you, you kind of are aware of market conditions. So this is something where when you think about like the dynamics of people in the space, it actually creates a much simpler UX. Um, and we also send a notification when that happens. It's not just where we actually added email notifications as well. Mm -hmm. So not only are you probably already monitoring the market and aware of the market conditions, but you also will get a notification as well. If, if you're getting, uh, if your loan is, you know, in auction and, 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 and it looks like the market conditions have changed and, and maybe it's like not finding, a uh, another lender as quickly as desired. Um, so yeah, basically my, my thesis would be in the steady state, this actually becomes much easier for collectors than having to set like reminders for, for different loans. Um, of course, that's something that the market still wants to see play out before kind of embracing it. And to put a finer point, I mean, obviously this is early data, but like if you're getting eight percent, six, eight percent on your staked ETH or whatnot, even obviously fairly low if you're not staking your ETH, and you're able to earn, you know, ten x that, um, you know, as as rate stands right now, obviously things will change pretty dramatically, but nonetheless, you know, they're fairly they're fairly high. Yeah, sure. There some of that is you know NFTs are by definition, riskier kind of collateral types. I get that. But there, you know, even in this Dutch auction mechanism, I think your point's the right one, which is there there will be an efficient market where someone steps in and is willing to supply, you know, and, and kind of pick up that loan, right? Um, even though liquidity dries up, there are always kind of market participants out there, presumably, that are willing to supply liquidity at the right rate. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. Like you know, I'm, I guess I'm reminded of the day where like Black Thursday happened or Black Friday. I forget. It was like a blurry set of 72 hours where Maker had this problem where it was a whole set of issues on the, it was two problems. One, it didn't have enough of a keeper system, like meaning people that were bidding on the collateral. Gas prices were really high. So people weren't, the bids were not going through and the Oracle was kind of all over the place. So it was like a perfect storm of things. And in this case, it's just a bit different, right? You certainly have to keep in mind like the, you know the the flora punks does matter right um you know it kind of the if the if the flora punks all of a sudden drops from 60 to 30 well you're gonna have a problem right across kind of a lot of the the loan book right you know, people are gonna automatically want to refinance that is that yeah. is that kind of a fair statement right yeah yeah basically you know from a borrower perspective 
this mechanism, honestly, it's it's more borrower friendly than lender friendly because if you have a position on an exchange and the market conditions change, you know, you're getting liquidated overnight, right? Everyone, you know, who's who's in the trading space or in DeFi, we we've all seen tweets where people are like, oh yeah, like went to sleep and woke up and my my account was liquidated. So that that happens, you know, fairly often, and that's a risk of. You know that and exchanges need to do that because they can allow they can do more aggressive positioning and they really need to be able to you know liquidate people instantly whereas on blend the locations happen over 30 hours and so as a borrower it's actually like whatever the borrower friendly you like however borrower friendly taking a position on exchanges it's significantly more friendly with blend just because the liquidation mechanism is is not instant it's it's 30 hours uh, just on this point, um, back to the maker example, there are very few keepers, meaning this people that were supplying liquidity or buying the bidding on the collateral, those being liquidated. In this case, you talk about like sophisticated people like Punk's OTC, who knows the punk market extremely well. What like in the stress scenario where in this thirty-hour window, could there be a situation where there's very few lenders out there? that are paying attention to this stuff that they coordinate and are willing to kind of push the APY up to that limit, right? Because the incentive, if there are like three people and you all know that's always the same three people showing up when these Dutch auctions happen, when the incentive is to wait till 29th hour and then start kind of bidding, right? Um, on this refinancing auction. Santi, on that too, I just want to add that I've also heard some concerns, like if you're taking a 90% LTV loan um, and then it's 30 hours or up and it goes into an auction, like especially if if those lenders maybe control some of the floor price to some extent. I think this is really just a problem with the market being mature or not, like at the beginning. But uh, if you could take out a 90% LTV loan, like who's going to take that uh, bid in the auction just because it's such a risky loan against like an inherently, you know, illiquid asset class? Yeah, great question. So... From that perspective, you know, I'm just looking at the the, the stats um, right now, and currently, um, so far in the past 24 hours, there have been 243 lenders on Blend. I don't know exactly like at what point it's like that sort of like you know it's it's really a prisoner's dilemma, right? It's like okay, you you might you might coordinate, but really the first person to not coordinate is going to be the one that that keeps the yield and makes the best deal. And with on-chain activity, it's like, I can be like, oh, hey, like we're going to go and coordinate. And then, oh no, like a fourth wallet, like a fourth mystery wallet went and and broke this promise and 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 they got all the yield and, and it wasn't me. Um, so I think, you know, the the issue with, the thing about prisoners of Emma's is that it's so brutal. Like people defect so often, mm-hmm. like the default mm-hmm. case. Yep. So I would be, I would feel pretty confident in that not happening. And and 243 is a large enough set that like, like even with just with like three people with this kind of dynamic uh, or even just two, um, I would, I would not feel super comfortable betting on, uh, I guess the prison with this many people. It's like, I would, I would be incredibly surprised. Um, you know, one of those, you know, a few hundred people is, is going to defect then, uh, and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll do the refinancing at, at a good rate because they can make a profit. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, on this point, if, if you're a less sophisticated liquidity provider and you have some ETH laying around, 
and you're you know you know the collection really well or you have a, some understanding of nfts or even maybe you don't is there an in, remind me here of the mechanism is there an incentive to get points for the season two or something where for you to kind of indicate in the order book of where you're willing to supply liquidity in certain terms yeah so the way the lending incentives work is you know and just just for context for season two we have two types of points prior to blend it was bidding points and lending points um and they're both like equally weighted so you know basically like at the end of season two like bidders would get half of the airdrop and, and listers would get half of the airdrop and what we did with the introduction of lend is we didn't want to like dilute that at all uh so what we did was for the collections with lend enabled we disabled the listing points and redirected them to lending points so like if a collection we're going to get let's say in a month 100 points you know 50 bidding and 50 listing uh with blend instead of getting the 50 it, it gets zero listing points and then 50 lending points so the, the total sum is still 100 it's just you know the, the allocations have shifted and the lending points are rewarded to lenders who create loan offers on the order book. Um, a lot of people ask us, oh, why not reward people for taking positions? Um, but the issue is taking a position is the same as uh, incentivizing volume. Anytime you incentivize volume, you just create the incentive for watch trading. Uh, and especially with, uh, even with a small fee, the watch trading is going to happen. But with Blend, there's, there's actually zero fees for borrowers and lenders. And so what that would happen is you would just see a lot, you would see volume skyrocket, but that volume would just be pretty much fake. And you, you, we've seen that as well in, in DeFi. It's played out you know, numerous times where protocols will, will create incentives for taking out positions. And, uh, and then after the incentives run, uh, you know, die off, you see the, the borrowing volume just like drop off click uh, because it was never real in the first place. So every incentive we've ever done at Blur has always been focus on liquidity and not borrowing. So like everyone taking a borrowing position on blend, they don't get any rewards for that. The only reward they got is that, you know, they had a nice loan offer at a pretty high LTV at a pretty good interest rate. Uh, and, and that allowed them to make a trade uh, or borrow more ETH than they otherwise might've been able to. So basically the goal of the lending incentives is to create, you know, good liquidity conditions for borrowers. And then those liquidity conditions on its own should be what draws the borrowers in. This is similar to how on Curve, the Curve incentives, they only reward liquidity. You don't have any incentive to trade on Curve. Any of that volume on Curve is, is not due to any sort of like volume incentives. It's due to Curve's incentives creating good market conditions for the users of the protocol, uh, which is what we focus on as well. Yep, that makes sense. You talked about that in the last episode that we did, so everybody will have to check that out. Um, one one tangential question I have is, um, with this buy now, pay later, and also it seems like maybe there'll be a little bit of a focus there on more of a retail, even though I know Blur overall, as you said in the last episode, is like prosumer focused. I'm curious, there's been like a shift to mobile, it seems, in crypto lately, and I know like gaming will, then you have Uniswap, um, also the Sega phone. How do you think about like that in general, crypto shift to mobile? And is that something you're already thinking about? Because I'm just imagining, for example... You were saying how you give email notifications. Well, it'd be pretty sick if I had an app that I could easily do a buy now, pay later NFT. And then also I get notifications like, hey, you might need to top up here or, you know, some action being called. Yeah, absolutely. I think when we think about, you know, while we're aiming to build as core contributors, you know, there's a lot of inspiration that we can take from the token market. 
because the token market is uh, much more mature than the NFT market, right? NFTs really only popped off starting in 2020. Tokens have been around, you know, since the, the 2010, right? So tokens, token infrastructure has had a decade more to develop. And when we look at, uh, you know, protocols and, and companies that we really like, you know, Uniswap is a good one, of course, right? They launched like a mobile app. That was nice. But I think a much better model is, is Binance, where you can see that they started focusing on the crypto natives, but then they built out a broad suite of products over time to cater to uh, the entire, you know, horizontal segment of the user base. And when we think about how to grow and develop products, you know, similarly, you know, you can think of Blur as kind of building the Binance of NFTs is a mental model. Uh, now, of course, it takes time to build that out. And so what you've seen, if you, if you look at us, like empirically, what we've done, we focus on the, the prosumer market first, uh, because that is a market that we still believe is like the most underserved. But ultimately, when we think about, you know, con collectors and, uh, and even retail, right, like the next wave uh, for the next bull market, right now we're still in the bear market. But in a bull market, you know, we want to have solutions for the entire suite of, of users. Uh, but it's just it's going to take time to, to get there, of course. I know we're coming up in the hour here, and I'm curious, um, you know, it just feels like yesterday that you launched Blur, and now you've launched Blend. What's next on the roadmap? I mean, there's a lot of hype around real-world assets. I mean, as a reminder, NFTs, it's not just art. I think art is just the segue, the beginning of what else is kind of possible, right? Um, but I'm curious, what what are you thinking about next? Yeah, I think, you know, one, one thing we've always done is we've kind of pretty much never shared uh, what we do, uh, what we have planned. <laughs> uh, we, you know, we kind of not, not even, not even with investors, to be fair. I had no idea that you were going to launch this and you ping me, Hey, can we record a podcast? We're launching something. And I was like, uh, okay, I, don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what this is. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, there was one investor that was like DMing me like a few weeks ago and was like, Oh, like I, I hear on the grapevine you're launching like NFT perps and it's just like, I just like ignored it. Um, so yeah, even with, with investors, we don't, we don't share, uh, anything typically, uh, we'd like to just, you know, release the thing that, that we're working on. Um, and we've been really grateful that, uh, that everyone like, like Santi has been, uh, supported, uh, even with that lack of information. Um, but yeah, we typically don't like to project, uh, and just, and, and then just ship, but, you know, I think for the near term for us, there's still a lot of low hanging fruit that we need to work on. So, you know, even just like for blend right now, like a lot of the activity, it's not integrated with the activity feed. So it's hard to monitor as like a lender, you don't really have good stats as like a borrower, you don't have to good stats. So of course there's functionality to be built around that. And, um, you know, so not just on the protocol side, but on the, the application layer. And then, uh, you know, still for the blur marketplace itself, like there's, you know, basic low hanging fruit things. Like we still need to support trade bids. We still need to support individual bids. We still need to, um, you know, have more collector friendly UIs. And, uh, we also need to optimize the gas. We were very fortunate to be able to work with transmissions 11, who, uh, is on the research team at paradigm. He's like this, like basically like gas optimizing, like he's like expert. a gas expert. He's like a gas expert <laughs> in high school. It's really hilarious. But he's like the best, like he's like one of the best Solidity developers in the world. And he really helped a lot with optimizing gas for blend. He's also a top contributor to Seaport as well, which is, um, you know, OpenSea's uh, very gas optimized uh, marketplace. And so for Blur, uh, one of the most common complaints that we see is, um, you know, that the gas is, is pricier than other marketplaces. Now for uh, any collection that's like priced at more than like 0.5 ETH, 
it becomes mostly irrelevant uh, for most uh, for most people buying and selling just because like the gas is such a small portion of the total cost. But then for like cheaper collections, um, it becomes much more significant. So there's just like low hanging fruit like that. And that's something that, um, yeah, it's funny because when we see commentary in the market, a lot of the commentary is around where Blur is today, but we've been building for 471 days. Um, you know, the, the competitors that we, uh, you know, are, are now like larger than from a volume perspective, but, um, uh, that, that we had to compete against, you know, they've been around for literally like five years, right? So there's just like a lot of, uh, there's a lot of infrastructure to build both on the protocol side and on the infrastructure side. Um, so ultimately we, we want to make sure that we can go and we launch blend. We want to make sure that we're not ignoring the core user experience as well. Um, and so just focusing on the low hanging fruit, uh, in addition to, to, you know, some of the, you know, the bigger, like splashier things that we're really excited to release. Um, we really want to make sure that we focus on the basics too. One, um, just point that I want to clarify on the point system. Um, it's hard to go back, but is there a kind of like a mechanism in how the points are calculated based on the duration of the loan? Yeah. So basically it's very similar to. You know, you know how on Curve, it's like you get um, uh, the rewards based, based on, on the duration is over time, right? And yeah. then they, they take like the integral and um, and they do right. it. And and, and on, on Blend, it's it's similar. It's you you basically get rewarded uh, points based on your loan sitting on the book over time because it's the risk that you're taking. It's yeah. the risk yeah. of the liquidity that you're providing over a, dura- a period of time. So you should get more rewards if, if you keep it on there for longer. Um, so yeah, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. You're basically taking a weighted out, like weighted average, like duration and volume, not just pure volume, right? Of loans. Right. Cause then you could. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Volume. And, and yeah. And I, and I would hesitate to say like volume, like, yeah, like volume of the liquidity is, uh, not just origination, but duration as well is what yeah. I tried to say. Yeah, exactly. That, that makes total sense. Well, this is great. Uh, Garrett, any other questions? And before we. No, that was great. Pac-Man, any parting thoughts? Um, before we wrap it up? Yeah, I think ultimately, you know, when we looked at the space, we we really like thinking about it as, you know, if you look at how the token market grew, it really grew on the back of the underlying infrastructure developing and growing, right? As the infrastructure became more institutional grade, it allowed larger providers to come in larger players both on the demand side and on the supply side from a liquidity perspective and nfts what we saw was a incredibly inefficient market uh both from the existing participants but also from a a capital perspective um if you have a hundred thousand dollar asset and it's traded at that you know for the past you know two years or four years uh you know through bull and bear markets then there is value in that that you should be able to unlock. Uh, and if you're able to unlock that value, then that means that the market can be more economically efficient and it can it can grow larger. If you look at the token market, it grew massively with the introduction of these economic primitives. So, you know, the majority of volume in the token markets actually comes from this financialized infrastructure for Bitcoin, uh, like the spot trading volume to like derivative trading volume. And that's like a big bucket of things, of course, but the spot to sh- derivative trading volume, derivative trading volume is currently like 10x the spot volume. So the vast majority of economic activity that is unlocked is literally basically through this infrastructure. It's like literally 10x. 
for NFTs, it literally had almost, you know, relatively zero, uh, you know, financialization, you know, prior to the introduction of Blend. And so when we think about that, we were really excited to introduce this financial infrastructure that, you know, we believe will enable more liquidity to come into the space, more economic efficiency to be unlocked and more economic value to be unlocked and basically allow the space to grow much, much larger. Um, and that's useful, not, not just for the space as it is today, but, you know, as we see the thesis, you know, our thesis play out of NFTs eating the world of non-fungible assets, that infrastructure, you know, a lending protocol, whether you're using it for PFPs or railroad assets or, you know, whatever it is, the NFT is encompassing, um, the, the primitive is the same. So we're really excited to see, you know, what this, uh, infrastructure can unlock. Yeah. No, Stefan, no, it's really exciting and encouraging. I mean, it's been less than 24 hours and I'm already fascinated, constantly refreshing this dashboard, uh, to see where the rates are. And you could just envision a whole set of products that are built and new primitives that are built on top of this. So really excited. Uh, I know you're not going to disclose it, but I'm sure there's a ton of stuff on the whiteboard that is, comes next. And so we'll probably have to have you on, I don't know, three, six months, a month. I don't know. It seems like you guys are shipping at a, at a record uh, pace. So this has been great. I uh, really appreciate going, going deep, always uh, really um, insightful discussion. So congrats and um, yeah, keep up the great work. Thanks for and, coming on the show. And, you know, just one one last comment as I'll say, it's, it's quite interesting because with this infrastructure and the primitives, you know, we're starting to see out definitely much more of an ecosystem develop around it as well. Like that dashboard that you're refreshing, that wasn't built by us. That was just built by uh, a community member. Um, and as, as the primitives unlock more behaviors, we're excited to see a lot more develop. Uh, even outside of just the core contributors and, and, you know, seeing that already starting to play out is super exciting. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're definitely going to be working to contribute, uh, you know, our own developments too. Awesome. Pac-Man, as always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.